Welcome to the Selling from the Heart podcast, your home for authentic, effective, and socially integrated sales strategies to help you master the art of selling. Join your co-hosts, Larry Levine and Daryl Amy, along with some of the world's best sales thought leaders and practitioners as we explore ways to help you grow your sales. Hello and welcome back to the Selling from the Heart podcast. Your co-host Daryl Amy here today with Larry Levine. What's going on, Larry? Baseball is back. I get Larry Levine back. Baseball's back, Daryl. Even though it's spring training, and I was in the gym this morning and I caught a lot of grief because I started talking about baseball until someone said it's only spring training. It doesn't really matter. I said it matters. It It does matter when you bleed Dodger blue. So it does matter. Hey, welcome back to the Selling from the Heart podcast. If you're new to the podcast, you've joined a growing community of sales professionals that are dedicated to being genuine, being authentic, bringing true value. We call it Selling from the Heart. And Larry, I am uh, so extremely fired up about the guests that we have today. I think this is going to be an incredible discussion. Oh, I've been looking forward to this one for, for quite some time, ever since my first conversation with Mike. But, um, you know, you and I are both avid readers and, and we've devoured, you know, insight selling and so forth. And I go, you know what, what better way to, you know, to introduce insight selling and, and tie that into selling from the heart than to have the one and only Mike Schultz on selling from the heart. So, Mike, welcome to selling from the heart. Well, thanks so much for having you guys. I, I hear the Red Sox aren't so bad. Um, <laughs> <laughs> All right, man. Come this on. This is great. We had a Giants fan on a couple of weeks ago. Now we've got a Red Sox fan. I love this. Uh, man, I, I was telling Mike before the show, I don't, I don't know that a day goes by that I don't quote something from Insight Selling. So we're, we're excited to have you here. We're honored. Thanks for the uh, deep research and data that you're bringing to, to our profession. But before we start uh, dive into this conversation today, I'm just curious, you know, when you hear the word selling from the heart, what does that mean to you? Well, I think, um, you know, there's a lot of different ways that I could, I could approach that, but let's just go with the first thing that uh, comes to mind. Uh, I almost stopped doing all of this stuff. Uh, I was, um, I was lucky enough to have my first child born about seven years ago, uh, and he was actually born uh, with a pretty serious heart defect. Hmm. He said selling from the heart. Anytime I hear heart, uh, he's the first thing that I think of. And there was a time when he, he probably spent about, actually over the course of his life, about 430 days in the hospital overnight. And I was at the bedside for probably about 350 of them. Wow. And a lot of times I thought, I can't work. I can't do this. But I had to because I'm not independently wealthy, at least not yet. Uh, And so I would ask myself, why am I doing this? And I would see the kid that was sleeping, you know, five feet away from me um, day in and day out. And it's like, yeah, you know what? I have to do this for my family. Mm. And I have to persevere and trudge through it. And it almost seems, you know, inauthentic to make the switch to say that life is hard and selling is hard and we all have to fight through certain things to be able to get to the outcomes that, that we want and need. But it, it's, mm-hmm. it's still true is that if, if something's important enough for you, if it means enough to you, if it's in your heart, then 
you can literally do anything in the face of any kind of adversity. So that's the first thing that comes to mind. Wow. <laughs> I feel like we can end the podcast now. It's <laughs> so awesome. Um, wow. Uh, thank you. Thanks for sharing that. And, and, you know, it goes back to the why, like, what's your why? What's, what's going to bring you to the table? What's going to bring you to take the abuse that you take every day as a sales professional and it, and man, connecting with that on such a profound level, that's, that's inspirational, man. Thank well, you. Well, yeah, it's interesting, Mike, cause you, you brought up something that, that, uh, and I think you're pretty direct from what I know of you and so forth is so you're right. Selling is hard and there, you know, there's no silver bullet to this. And I always say, you know, if you take your heart out of what you do, especially in sales, you just become lifeless and you just kind of go through the motions. And that's why I just, you know, I don't have some massive psychology degree behind me, but I just said, you know what, if you, if you can bring your heart to your personal relationships and you can bring your heart to your, you know, your family and your close, the people that are close to you, why can't you do that in the sales role that you're in? Mm -hmm. And I think that's the big disconnect. That's the big disconnect, at least that I see a lot of times. Yeah. And I appreciate your, uh, your mention of, of the research. I'll bring up something that I don't know if, uh, you or your audience, um, might have even keyed in on. And that's a research report that we wrote called the value driving difference. And we looked at the culture of a sales organization from the perspective of whether or not they believed that their driving reason for being mm -hmm. was to maximize value for buyers. And that that was more important to their leadership than hitting this quarter's numbers. So if they were more willing to say, no, this quarter's numbers are not as important as doing the right thing by our buyers and making their worlds better, for those organizations that were more in the, you no know, value is more important than hitting our numbers, mm -hmm. culture was wildly different. They were three times as likely to be as motivated to achieve top performance as the ones where the numbers were actually more important. Wow. The sales managers found it exceptionally easier to get the best out of their sellers and to have them sell with passion, energy, and enthusiasm when they believed that the number one thing that the organization cared about was driving value versus making numbers. So, so, so there you go. If, if something's important enough, and you can translate it right to, right to sales forces, we studied it is that meaning makes a huge difference. And it might sound foofy and it might sound not hard hitting and it might sound like something that isn't on the top of every salesperson's uh, LinkedIn profile when they're actually looking for a job where it says killer instinct to drive numbers, blah, blah, blah. It doesn't sound like that, but you know, our research shows that that's, that's what actually makes people uh, get up and go and, and, and sell the most. Yeah, so I mean, what, what do you think the big disconnect is? Because... You know, it, it's interesting. And this is why I say this, Mike, as I was listening to what you were saying, is a lot of times I'll spend some time looking at a company's mission statement or their vision statement or their value statement, which is which has a lot of what you were just alluding to somewhere in there. Uh, but, then, but then when it comes, when it's all said and done, that seems to go off to the wayside. And guess what they focus on? They focus on the complete opposite. Well, it, it goes by the wayside sometimes. So what's the disconnect? I would say that the disconnect comes down to two things, uh, fear and spinelessness. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, and I would say it's more ownership and leadership of companies versus sellers. Uh, because for the most part, if you put a seller in an organization where let's think about it less as a publicly held company and more as a privately held company where the family says the reason that we have had success for the last 63 years is because we have made it our lives mission to go to sleep knowing that we did the right thing by buyers. And I would like to say to you all here, as we kick off, as we kick off a new year at our, at our sales kickoff and get you all excited. I don't care if we hit our numbers. (laughs) If you are faced with the choice to make that last sale or to do the right thing, I want you to do the right thing. We're going to do all that together. And so what happens on this week or what happens on next week, the chips might fall where they fall. But over the course of time, two things will happen. We will be a wildly successful company and we will be able to sleep at night in the process. I think that a certain amount of spinelessness from leadership and management to be able to hold true to that. Yeah. It's easy to say when, when you're, when things are good, but when things are hard, it's not so easy to do. Yeah. Uh, and then in terms of fear, uh, people fear losing their jobs, whether they're sales leaders or managers or whether they're sellers, if they don't make that less sale, they're going to lose their job. Yeah. So right. The disconnect typically has to do with uh, spinelessness and, and fear. Wow. I mean, that's so powerful to see the research behind the things that we're talking about, which is authentic relationships and authentic value coming in. I'm, you know, I'm curious, uh, like when you, when you think about um, this whole, whole, whole aspect of adding value, you know, what, what are you seeing in the research in terms of what the buyers actually value? I think we make a lot of assumptions Mm -hmm. as salespeople in terms of what buyers value, but I'm curious from your research, um, what you see from the buyer's perspective in mm-hmm. what they value from their sales professionals and partners. Uh, sure. So for one of our studies called what sales winners do differently, we studied mm-hmm. purchases from the buyer's perspective. Uh, a lot of sales research is done from the seller perspective. This one's from right. buyers. We studied 731 business to business purchases from buyers that represented $3.1 billion in products and services purchased mm-hmm. and asked them what separated the sellers that they awarded a major purchase to, you know, right, the, right. the seller won the big sale to the seller that came in the closest second, but lost. And we looked at factors that uh, had to do with how the seller interacted with them. We looked at factors of brand. We looked at factors of product and whether the product itself was superior or not. Mm-hmm. And the top 10 things that uh, sales winners do differently didn't have anything to do with the company's brand and didn't have any in terms of why the buyer purchased one versus another. And it didn't have to do with the product product came in 24th out of 42 wow. factors in terms wow. of whether or not the product was different, but the top wow. factors had to do with how the seller interacted with them. So um, what they value uh, is that the sellers uh, connect with them as people Mm-hmm. Relational, and yes, also, and they also connect the dots between their needs and the company's solutions. Mm-hmm. Uh, they value getting the highest ROI, having the least amount of risk, mm-hmm. uh, and they value whether or not the seller actually brings new ideas uh, and unleashes the value that they could have possibly got, uh, but wouldn't have gotten without the interaction with the sellers. Amazing. Well, that- that's, I mean, that's, that's interesting stuff because the last, the last one that you just said, Mike, and I kind of, I make a humorous note on it sometimes, as I said, you know what, 
as a salesperson, you got to bring something to the table that somebody can't easily find on page one of Google. Mm -hmm. Yeah, no, I agree. Um, it has to at least be page one and a half or something like that. It has to be buried back there somewhere. Yeah. So that's actually one of the things that we're finding from our research is, and it's what we're essentially labeling is the difference between basic and advanced consultative selling. Mm-hmm. But basic consultative selling still doesn't happen uh, as often as you think, uh, where uh, I would define the general calculus of consultative selling as understand need, craft a compelling solution that matches that need, mm-hmm. gets an outcome uh, that the buyer desires, and you win. Right. So uncover need, craft a compelling solution for that need, get an outcome. Mm-hmm. Great. So, but that's that's that sort of like, tell me, well, tell me what you're trying to achieve and tell me what you've done before and what do you hope happens and what do you hope doesn't happen? All right, let's dig into the details. If you have 1.21 gigawatts of power on blah, 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 is that going to be able to connect with this? And if so, why or why not? So just getting to the various, wow, geez, they really listen. So that's core consultative selling. Mm -hmm. Advanced consultative selling. Uh, Let me ask you guys a question, uh, dear podcast masters. (laughs) <laughs> have you ever seen rfps before you've gotten rfps oh, yeah. of course oh yeah there you go that's the universal of course answer disgust right well but besides disgust let, let, let let's not place any any um sort of emotional value on them but let's look at them analytically when you get them and read them mm-hmm. are they always written in ways that ask ask you to provide exactly the right information, ask you to provide all the information that you need to be able to unleash the most value. They don't make any mistakes. All you have to do is say like, Oh yeah, exactly. I just have to respond to this and, and, and they'll get the most. Is that what every RFP that you get looks like? I don't know that it's ever happened in the history of RFPs. (laughs) Never, 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 never. So let's take it away from RFPs for a minute. RFPs are just written, written expressions of what buyers think. Okay. So if you're talking to them in, in the real world and you ask them about their needs and they tell you, and then you bring back something that's going to meet their needs, then it's just like the RFP. They they, they don't have the right concept. They don't have the right concept of what's possible. They're not necessarily focusing on the right things. There might be something that they don't know about that if they were considering it, not even just what product is available, but just how to approach their problem overall Mm. um, could actually get them a lot more outcome and a lot less heartache in a better time frame Mm. from potentially even, you know, not even necessarily costing them more. So it's contingent upon the sellers to actually bring those ideas to the table and change how buyers think about the concept of what they need and change change their assumptions about how they should move forward to actually solving those problems or achieving the results. So when the seller can bring what we're going to call advanced consultative selling skills to the table, mm-hmm. not only do they unleash maximum value, but they do it unexpectedly. Right. So that's what they do. And second, if three sellers got RFPs, most sellers just respond. But if you're the one that says, let me ask you some questions about the construct of what you're trying to do, just so I understand it and I can make sure I bring the right things to the table, unless mm-hmm. the buyer says yes. Next thing you know, you've changed their whole concept about what's possible. The other guy can't even, can't even approach what you're right. going to do. So you have not just become differentiated, you're actually proposing on a different set of problems. 
Right. The other sellers can't even touch you. You're what is known as sui generis. You become a completely different category. You are categorically distinctive. It's not just your, your, your product has 1.21 gigawatts and theirs has 1.1.9. No, no, no. You actually are in a different category. So you can both unleash value and differentiate by changing buyers thinking, even if the products you bring to the table might have some interchangeability. That's strong. Here you go. Advanced consultative selling. So for the sales, sales professionals listening that go, I want to do that. You know, I mean, I want to, I want to be that, that person. I want to be that sales professional. What are some practical steps? Oh, you you can't actually, you can't actually do it. It's unachievable. Okay. Well, that's good to know. Well, thank you everybody for joining us this week. (laughs) Yes. Enjoy, enjoy your retirement. Go ahead. Hang up your cleats and sob gently in the corner. This price. Yeah, well, it, it start it starts with um, a shift in mindset for the seller versus you know something that you actually have to do is to say, yeah. is there something that you can do to bring more value to the table? Ask yourself that question about RFPs. When they ask mm-hmm. you in an RFP, what do they get wrong? What do they get wrong? Well, they think too short term, and they're constantly asking about price. I actually do want to spend something more because the total cost of ownership is going to go way down over the course of three to five years. And if they leverage it over an enterprise level versus the division, they're going to be able to have vendor consolidation. They're going to be able to get cost down across the board. Ask yourself the question, where is the unlocked value? If you know that answer, the journey can become clear of what you need to do to be able to unleash that value. And to do that, you're going to need skills. You're going to need skills about how do you persuade? How do you influence? And if you just walk in and say, oh, I hear what you're saying. Do it like this. They're going to say, you know, nice to know you hit the street. Right. Yep. So there's, there's a complex set of things. It's just like, you know, baseball, um, you know, Larry said at the beginning, there's not one silver bullet. When we were talking, there's a number of different things. If you want to succeed, you have to be able to hit curveballs. You have to be able to hit fastballs. You have to be able to hit. You have to be able to know when to take a pitch. You have to know the rules. You have to be able to run the bases. You have to be able to feel. Fielding means knowing where to go, knowing where to throw the ball, knowing be able, being able to catch it, strengthening your arm. It means all of these different kinds of things. So there's a subset of things that you need to be able to do to be good. But it starts with this concept of what's the actual impact I can have. If you know that impact and you work with a a half-decent coach, the journey will become clear of what you need to be able to do to achieve that impact. Yeah, that's, that's I mean, I enjoy listening to this because it's so interesting through, you know, through the sales channel that I came out of, Mike. Mm -hmm. It's so interesting how many times in a given week, in a given month, in a given quarter, I hear salespeople referring to themselves as consultative salespeople, which, which, right. Just being direct and brutally honest is let me ask you one or two questions, right. So I can listen to what I want to hear. Okay. I, I asked some good questions. I'm a consultant. No, you're not. You're far from it. And I think that, I think that's the, you know, that's the challenge that, that I'd like to have the listeners at least walk away from this is, you know, take a step back and go, you know, what it, what does it truly mean to be that consultative seller, that advanced mm-hmm. consultative seller? And, you know, what am I willing to do in order to make that happen? Yeah. And I think um, what you need to do oftentimes is put yourself out of the comfort zone and put your buyer out of their comfort zone. It's just like any actual marriage. If you sit down at dinner, ask a couple of cursory questions, have a pleasant conversation and go to sleep 
there's all sorts of things that are hidden under the surface that you probably should have talked about (laughs) better that week that might actually be able to get out of your life what you want out of your life. But instead, you know, that continues to sit on the table because nobody has the courage to, to, to uh, jump in and, you know, hit a harder set of issues or change someone's mental model about, about how they're approaching the world. Uh, so it takes a certain amount. Like if you want to be an advanced consultative seller, you have to be, you know, like a consultant. Right. And I don't mean like some Joe Schmo consultant. Think of it as the world's greatest consultants at a place like a McKinsey. Do you think a McKinsey says, oh yeah, as a consultant, what I do is I ask questions and then a week later I come back with a solution. I don't actually, I don't tell people where I think the world is going in five years and then say, if you want to anticipate it and get ahead of the curve, what I would do is this, not that. And your thinking is actually really good if it was two years ago, but on the cutting edge, you actually have to do something else. Cause if you do what you're talking about right now, you're going to do it. You're going to get it done. It's really going to help. And then the guy that's thinking two years ahead of you is going to clobber you. Is that what you want? Yeah. Oh, geez. Well, I might not necessarily say it with that amount of directness before I know someone. But at some point, you have to be able to say, you know, look, I think that you might be cruising for a bruising here. If I was in your position, you know, I'd ask myself, one, if I did this, is it going to help me achieve the strategic objective that you just set forth in your, um, in your you know, annual report? Yeah. Right now, it looks like uh, I, I don't think so. So if you really want to be bold and do X, Y, Z, I wouldn't do the strategies from five years ago. Yeah. I think that, you know, if you want to stand out in this competitive market, you're just going to essentially remain 18 months behind. Well, that takes a certain amount of courage to do that at the board level. It takes a certain amount of courage to, if you're selling, selling something to a director who might have a budget to do something, but, um, you know, just still doesn't have the right concept of how to get the most value out of it. You risk getting tossed, tossed out in the street. Um, and that can happen, but you know what? We lose sales here and there and that's how it goes. You also run, you give yourself the opportunity of developing a relationship that's 10 times stronger than someone else's because you're actually there to do what we started talking about. Provide the most value, even if it puts you at risk. Mm. And, and that, and that's, that's a home run because, um, and I remember a long time ago, Mike, I don't know if, if, uh, you know, of a guy named James Muir, James Muir wrote the book, the perfect close. Yeah, sure. I know James. Yeah. Super great guy. And he was on the podcast and I've gotten a chance to get to know him, you know, through some other areas. And he just says, you know what? The close just happens. It's something that that people just sense. And, and I'm paraphrasing what he said, but you know, along the lines of what you just said is people sense it, right? I don't care at what level they, they will sense that you're there, that you care just through the questions that you ask. I mean, it's amazing the things that happen when, when you're asking these questions from a point as I care, there's no manipulation behind it. There's no deception behind it. Yeah. There might be no deception behind it, but I'd like to rephrase something. There might be some manipulation. I'm actually trying to get you to do something. Yeah. I see a path here and it might be challenging for you to know what to do. And I am actually trying to persuade you to go left, not go right. Yeah. I just not I just don't have it I don't have an enlightened self-interest about it. It doesn't matter to me whether you go left or you go right. So you can go left or go right with me. I but I do have a a point of view. And if you don't have a point of view as a salesperson, oh, it doesn't necessarily mean you have to have the same point of view with everyone. Right. Broken record. The idea is, is that if you can actually tackle someone's challenge and help 
craft a vision about how to move forward uh, and you think that that vision is the best, you don't have to hide about wanting to persuade about that. Absolutely. Absolutely. Point of view. That's good. That is, oh man, so good. Yeah. This, this, all of this, you know, from the standpoint of, and I love, you know, I love the research that, and I know this study was, was in, in insight selling, but when buyers see a provider working with them as a team to achieve common goals, to get to that, you know, Mm -hmm. I've always, as a sales professional, I always want a seat at the table. Right. And when, when we get to that level of actually um, bringing value uh, that's and uh, like you said, having a point of view, <laughs> you get a seat at the table when you have a point of view and you've got some ideas to bring to the table that are actually going to help that organization move forward. Um, so strong, so strong. So what's lighting your fire these days as we kind of wrap up uh, the podcast today? I'm curious, maybe maybe the question is, where do you see all this going? I mean, what you know, sales professionals are looking at this at their profession now out the next five, 10 years. I mean, what does a sales rep need to do to prepare for the future and become effective in the years to come? Uh, yeah. So I'll, I'll say two things. One, everything that we talked about with advanced consultative selling skills, actually tackling a body of knowledge, uh, tackling someone's challenge and then helping come up with a better mousetrap for how to approach it Mm -hmm. uh, is important. That's going to help you not get replaced by artificial intelligence. That's right. Yeah. The simpler, the simpler interactions will be covered yeah. by some other process. Um, but we also see, and what we're seeing is a huge, a huge opportunity in sales that almost nobody's talking about um, is productivity. Now, some people are actually talking about it. But they usually say, oh, if you buy my software, you're going to be a little bit more productive. Right, right. That's not what I mean. I mean how sellers manage their time and day to actually choose what to get done, get it done, and then get more of it done than other people. There's a massive opportunity uh, where that's possible. And this all stemmed from, oh, years ago, where I was talking to one of our clients and they said, you know what, in this particular area, our team totally needs better skills. But some of them already know how to do this. And I'll tell you right now, they know how to do it and they're not doing it. So how do we actually change that? So we started an inquiry. It was going on five years or five years ago now. And we said, all right, well, if we roll out the program, let's make sure anything that we roll out, everyone does. We started to roll out this concept of a 90 day challenge, almost like a P90X for sales. Mm-hmm. Sure. Uh-huh. Every day, let's build a plan for what you're going to do. And we're going to uh-huh. do this and we're going to build in accountability systems. And we've been uh, testing that and shifting things in and out and trying different kinds of things. Whereas in the last couple of years, it's just been, really working uh, day in and day out. So we just studied the productivity and work behaviors of 2,377 business professionals, both sales and non-sales, to find out what the extremely productive people do and Uh what they do differently than, than the rest, the group of people that just weren't extremely productive. And they literally manage their time and days wildly differently. Uh, And those people that are the, um, extremely productive people tend to have three other things that, 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 uh, go along with them statistically. One, they are tend to be in the high performer groups. So you can do this skill, that skill, and the other group skill, but the people that work a certain way, they're the top performers. Secondly, um, they are more likely to have job satisfaction. Hmm. So, uh, statistically, they're actually quite a bit more likely to have job satisfaction if they're extremely productive. 
Mm-hmm. And I think that has a lot to do with uh, people's sense of, wow, you know, I'm good at this. And so I like showing up and doing it. Mm-hmm. And then the last part is, is people think, oh, productivity and get it, squeezing every last, every last minute out of the day on something, uh, something that I need to try to get done. Uh, that's just going to make me miserable like, uh, like some venture capitalist working and sleeping at my desk. Yeah. yeah, no, not really. If you do it the right way, uh-huh. uh, we actually found that the extremely productive spend more time on what we call treasured activities, things that they really cherish. Yeah. Um, and are, in fact, happier than the rest. So uh-huh. if you run your day and time a certain way, not only can you get more done and be in the top performer group, but you tend to like your jobs and be happy. So this confluence of things is something that's really um, really lighting my fire. Uh, because yeah. I can't bring, wait to bring it out to the world because when, <laughs> when we do, it tends to make a huge difference regardless of the skill set uh, that people tend to have. Uh, so that's, that's pretty exciting stuff. Man, when you talk about productivity, you're speaking my love language, man. That's, uh, that's awesome. I can't wait to see that study. Yeah, I'll have to call the author of that book, The Five Love Languages, tell them they have to add Do you have a warm relationship with your wife? No. Do you have a loving relationship? Mm, I can't say. Well, what's it like? Well, we're, we're highly productive together. That's going to go well for you. Oh. Yeah, yeah. Uh, l- l- let's try that at the office, not at home. <laughs> <laughs> Love languages of sales. There's your next book, Larry. That's going to be oh, great. Oh, thanks. Uh-huh. Thanks for the tips. <laughs> I appreciate it. Oh, my gosh. Well, hey, thank you so much, Mike, for sharing time with us. And uh, sincere thank you for the like the real substantive research you bring to our profession. It's, it's, uh, it's wildly helpful. And um, if you haven't read Insight Selling, and you're listening to this podcast, um, crawl out from under your rock, get a copy of that book. I mean, that is, you're going to, you're going to absolutely devour it and love it. Um, but as we end, uh, Mike, any other words of wisdom for our, our listeners? Well, I just want to say thanks to you guys. I'll bring the research. You guys bring the love and together <laughs> we'll make salespeople productive, happy, at home. Oh man, that's great. Well, thank you everyone for joining us. And as always, keep being genuine, keep being authentic, keep doing the hard work. And as we've talked about today, you know, bring some real ideas to the table, do, do your homework and come to the table with something substantive uh, to change the conversation, have a point of view, do all of that. And most of all, sell from the heart. Thanks for listening to the Selling from the Heart podcast on the SalesCast Network. If you enjoyed the show, make sure to hit the subscribe button so you don't miss an episode. We appreciate your encouraging reviews as it helps us spread the word. As always, we would love to connect with you. So look for us on LinkedIn, Facebook, Instagram, and your favorite podcast platform. This podcast is produced by our friends at SalesCast. Learn more at www.salescast.co. We look forward to seeing you next time.